few years ago, there's a family living in a beautiful home in West Palm Beach, Florida. Could as well just been uh, like uh, shores of Alabama. <laughs> Free to relate to that, right? Anyway, there was a film crew that came from Hollywood and they asked if uh, it was okay to use the front lawn of that property that they had for filming this one episode. Uh, it's a TV show, really. They knew that cars would be destroying that property because they'd be crashing violently in that on that street and then into the fence and into the yard of this house. So while it was being destroyed, <laughs> there was a call that went from a neighbor who was a friend of the people who owned the house. They just rented it out. But the owners were in New York City. They found out about it. They call up, say, hey, what's happening there? They told them what it was. And see, the tenants had no right to allow that property be, to, to be just absolutely destroyed. Absolute destruction to that whole area around there. So... Um, the owners, no doubt, were very upset about it. Quite a mistake there that uh, can happen. Uh, these people were acting as owners. They should have gotten permission first. Um, and the more valuable of property that people occupy, whether they own it or not, if they rent it, they are even more responsible for what they have. And so you can imagine tenants in a mansion, in a beautiful, gorgeous house, huge mansion, who refuse to pay rent. They don't pay their rent. And so when the owner sends the rent collectors around to get the money for it, they are threatened and they're beaten up and they don't collect the money from them. And the uh, ones who occupy the house say, Hey, it's our house now. We live here. So get out of here. That wouldn't stand a chance in court of law, would it? It's not their house. They rent it. But the owner has the right to receive rent and to have his property treated rightly, doesn't he? That would be his right. Well, in our passage today, we deal with something like that. We're following up on the uh, previous section in chapter 20. The first eight verses was dealing with authority. You see, he had come into the temple and proclaimed his authority by wiping out everything there. And so then they ask him, by what right do you do this? What authority do you have? Well, he answers them by asking a question. That's what we dealt with last week. And of course, he really is the one with authority there. They don't have it, even though they think they do. They run the temple, don't they? Not really. Jesus has just shown that. And these wicked tenants in this parable that we look at today 
wrongfully assume that they own the vineyard. It's not their own. They don't have it. The parable answers the question that the leaders had just asked Jesus. By what authority do you have to do these things? Now if God owns the vineyard and His Son, which is Jesus, is the rightful heir to His vineyard, He is acting under God's authority. He has all authority. Jesus does. The Jewish leaders have wrongfully usurped the authority. This is ours. Who are you to come into our place? This is our house. What right do you have to do to wipe all this out? By the way, it stayed wiped out, didn't it? For some time while he was there the rest of that week. It's a fundamental question. It's this. Who owns the vineyard? Who owns the vineyard? Keeping in mind, the answer to that question is going to determine how we live. Yes, even us. We are all accountable to God, are we not? We're accountable to Him. Ultimately, to Him alone are we accountable. We are to take care of what He has given us. That's including our bodies, our minds, body, mind, soul, spirit, everything. He owns and we are accountable to Him right now and especially at the judgment seat of Christ. Now Jesus shows here that God expects fruit. If you have a vineyard, what do you expect to get out of that? Grapes. You expect it, otherwise you wouldn't do it, would you? You wouldn't spend all those hours and months for that year and not expect a harvest. So, what we are going to emphasize here, that God expects fruit. That's going to be the first thing that we're going to look at. Secondly, is that we're going to look at God's great patience. His mercy is more, isn't it? His patience is incredible. It's beyond human thinking. And then we're going to see His love as portrayed in sending His Son. So we have fruit, we have patience, we have love. And if they don't trust the Son who comes for them, then they will be given judgment. So that's the fourth one. If they don't if they spurn His mercy and His grace and His everlasting patience, then they will be judged. But, And that's, of course, the cross is what saves us. And even though it looked like He was dead on the cross, and that's not where the story finishes, does it? It ends with triumph. You get a whole story here. You have the span of history of God dealing with mankind in this little parable. Wrapped up in... This is brilliant by Jesus. Because you see, He's the winner, isn't He? He's always the winner. 
He wins the Super Bowl. <laughs> By the way, remember last week I said, I hope the Chiefs win. Yeah. they got a good chance. But we have no guarantee and we could lose. Guess what? They won. There's one more to go. <laughs> That's next week. But you know what? Even if they lose, it's okay. It's just a game. <laughs> this is life. This is eternal. So, triumph as it closes out with what a fantastic parable Jesus comes up with. You know, He's amazing, isn't He? Amen. These things not only applied to ancient Israel, but also to us. It's not just a story about the terrible, wicked leaders of Israel and even Israel. It's about us. Us. God has graciously taken the Gentile people, chosen some of them, and put them into His vine. Romans 11. We've been grafted into that natural vine or olive tree. However you want to look at it. Of course, it's about the olive tree. The parable reveals five things about God. I just gave you a preview of that. And it's not only to Israel, but it's about all those who profess to be God's people. We also are taking care of the vineyard that He's given us. Okay, let's... uh, Stand. We will turn to chapter 20, verse 9, and following through 18. And he began to tell people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it out to vine growers, and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That's one. He proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. That's two. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. That's three. Strike three, you're out. Not yet. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be! But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. 
Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Let's pray. Father, holy, great God, owner of your created universe, you run it all. Thank you. Help us to realize that you are the owner. And we're working in your fields. We're working in your vineyards. We're working to bring fruit that will give a testation that we are made in the image of Jesus Christ. And this fruit would be Christ-like in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know what? I pulled it. That would be why. <laughs> I pulled it to move it over here and I never set it up. Thank you. Alright. Okay, um, sorry about the delay there. My fault. I pulled the plug. Anyway, um, we start first point here. The uh, owner expects fruit. Okay, he has the vineyard. Vineyard owner does it because he wants fruit out of it. I want to tell you, this is disturbing. It's shocking when you read the whole story of this. Absolutely shocking that Jesus brings this forth. To understand this parable, we have to identify the characters. And this is an easy parable, isn't it? You guys have already probably got what all this stands for. Who's the owner of the vineyard? That would be God, right? Um, how about the vineyard? What's the vineyard? That would be the tenant farmers, right? Or Israel, I mean. The the tenant farmers are the religious leaders. The servants or slaves of the owner are the prophets and the Son of God. The Son of God is really the heir of the owner. That's Jesus, right? So there are the five characters that we see in this story as they represent. It's a parable, but it's also, you can take some things out of this parable and apply it directly to what we know what's happening spiritually here, can't we? So, there's quite an analogy here. You remember, he's speaking to the massive crowds. Where are they at? In the temple. That's where he goes to teach every day. That's really... His 
house. They think it's their house. Well, he already moved their stuff out, didn't he? Two men in a truck come along, they put it in there and it's all gone. So, there he's speaking. The great crowd is in the temple area. The leaders are there with the crowd. The story is told to the people, to the leaders. Jesus knows exactly what He's doing. And they've already asked Him, well, what authority? So really, it just continues on with where we were at last week, isn't it? As He asked Him the question. And then they didn't come up with the answer because they knew if they did, they were stuck. They would lose either way they would say it. John the Baptist and his baptism, or that, you know... See, where they're so stuck, they don't know what to do. So what do we have here? It's, it's a story that's going to convict the leaders and anybody who rejects this Messiah who is right in their midst. So it says, And He began to tell the people this parable, parabole, to throw alongside... He's giving spiritual truths here as He uses human analogies that they can identify with. They're an agrarian society and he uses something that everybody knows about a vineyard. So it says, a man planted a vineyard. Now the man in the story, he's a landowner, right? He owned the vineyard. That's easy. All this is simple, but it's very profound. It's a very common occurrence in Israel. There are many vineyards all over the land of Israel. Definitely coming from an agricultural viewpoint, you have really two kinds of land. One that's hilly and rocky, and that's really what you have a lot in Israel. But you also have flat land. On the flat land, you plant your grain. On the hilly land, you plant your vineyards. And so, there are the two kinds. Uh, They would know about that. It's just kind of good to get in tune with what's happening there. Um, Whenever they would build a vineyard, they would uh, terrace it off that hillside. Just keep on coming down. Um, I don't know if you can really tell too much, but you can see it's kind of hilly. And you have a a tower in the middle of it. If you are really successful, you have one of those. And you have somebody watching out for anything that could come around there. And you might have walls around there. I see some rock walls in certain areas to divide off from other lands and vineyards and and such. It's to protect that vineyard. And so it was a common thing to have those vineyards. Um, It would make the people think of Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7. Let's turn there. Because Jesus tells the parable, and they have to go back to this famous, famous passage in Isaiah. They would know this. They'd have to think of this. Oh yeah. That's right. God spoke about the vineyard. Who was the vineyard? It's the nation. It says in verse 1, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. It's a song about the vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Okay? 
He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine, the best that he could have. He built a tower in the middle of it. And he also hewed out a wine vat in it so they could do it right there on the spot. They could squeeze out the grapes right there. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. That's what an owner would do. But it produced only worthless ones from the best kind of grapes. What's the best kind of grapes today? I think of Concord, Welch's. Right? I'm not so sure if that is, but it's pretty good. Welch's grape jelly with peanut butter. That's not the way to lose weight, is it? And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? He did everything, didn't he? And he took care of it. So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm going to tell you something. I'll remove its hedge. It'll be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. Nature takes over. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Oh, that's the worst that can happen for a farmer, right? No rain. And nobody taking care of it. What will happen? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The vineyard is. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness he looked for, but behold, a cry of distress. There's your parable of the vineyard in Isaiah. Do you think they would have known that? Basically telling the same news here that Jesus is in this gospel recorded by Luke. So, they ought to start recalling this. Um, He's making a warning here. And he's saying he's going to lay it waste if it only produced worthless grapes. A parallel passage is found in Matthew 21, 33 through 45, and also found in Mark 12 in the first 11 verses. They all add some little more depth to this. There might be a verse or two that we use as we go along here. Anyway, the owner rents out the vineyard to tenant farmers here. A man planted a vineyard, that's the owner, he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. That means he's absent. He owns the place, but he lets them farm on it He lets them do their business there. He's an absentee landlord. He's far, far away. He's not present. So we look at the tenant farmers here who he leases the land to, a group of them, 
And they make an agreement that at the time of the harvest, they will share the produce. There's going to be fruit out of this, and we are to give such and such an amount to the owner. That's what they know. They get to keep the rest of it. Whatever it is that they have agreed upon, that's what they are to do. They have certain farming skills. And it takes great skill for farmers to be able to get produce out of it and to be successful and have everything go right with it. It's a hard business. As we know that last year was a flood and a lot of farmers really just went under at very difficult times. We've had droughts where we have no rain. It's very difficult. But here it is. They are renting the land. They get produce out of the crop. They're to pay the owner. They're contract workers. And they have a benefit of working the land. It's a great deal for them. They don't have the expenses of the land and uh, everything that would, is provided for them as they start out there. It's a great opportunity for them, isn't it? Just wonderful. It's a great privilege. Along with that privilege is a responsibility, though. They're to take care of it. They're to work it, which is what they do. And then to give money to the owner, to pay him for whatever it was. So they get the best of it. They probably could do very well in making a living. That's what they did. Now, that would be the people in the parable, in the story. But even so, this definitely is applied to Israel, isn't it? The vineyard. And God drove out the wicked nations. If you go all the way back to the time that they came into their promised land, God did that. He entrusted His people to leaders. They were to be faithful. Matter of fact, they all were really to bring a bumper harvest. If the leaders would do what they did or were supposed to do, then there would be a great crop every year. God would bless that. That's the idea. He provided abundantly for the vineyard, didn't He? He took care of that. The responsibility is there though. God does everything. He has every right to expect fruit from Israel, doesn't He? Every right. He gave them everything that they needed. And so it is with us. Now we've gone from the story to Israel and the leaders and the people and now we take it to us. How does this work for us? We are greatly privileged just like those farmers We are so privileged. He's given us His Word. It's right here. We have that. It's precious. And He supplied us with everything pertaining to life and godliness. 1 Peter chapter... uh, uh, Yeah, 2 Peter chapter 1 
verse 3. He's given us everything we need. When we received Christ, we got everything. Not just a little bit, and then later on some more. No, we got all of Christ. To live this life and to live for Christ. He wants us to bear fruit of Christ-like lives. We want to be so Christ-like that it would make people hungry. That they would want to taste and see that the Lord is good. Is the Lord good? Have you tasted and seen it? Keep eating. The produce is all there. It's all provided. Keep eating it. So, did you know that here in our country, we are the most spiritually privileged people ever in the history of mankind. I'm going to be so bold to say that again. Not any time in history have people had the privileges that we do here in America as American Christians. Because you see, we have the Bible and we are not sent to jail because of it. It's taken away from us. We have multiple Bibles. We can carry it on our phone and have it with us all the time. Do we make use of it all the time? Well, not only that, but we have Bible dictionaries. If we want to look up something to see what it means. We have Bible commentaries. We have Bible ministries on the radio, on the internet, on CDs, DVDs. It's everywhere. It's totally surrounding us. Wow. Talking about what He has given us. We have the most readily available resources than anybody ever, and we probably use it less than anybody has had with the little that they have had. A lot of Christians can't even have a Bible. Wow. And you know what? We have more leisure time than any other nation in the history of all the world. You ever thought about that? What can we do with that leisure time? Well, you know, we can pursue spiritual things with it. To be thinking right. To be doing spiritual things. That's the reason we're put here. It's not about the things of the world. It's about the things of God, isn't it? Am I taking that a little bit too far? We have leisure time. And what do we do with it? You know what? We have added financial resources. So I don't make much Compare it to people throughout the rest of the world. Every one of us live in a nice home with heating and cooling and food in the refrigerators and food stocked everywhere and a car to go wherever we want to go at any time. Is it wrong to have leisure time? No. And sometimes it's good to have rest. But what I'm saying is to buy up that time until the Lord comes back. We have a body that we have been given that we're responsible for until the Lord, the owner, comes back to the vineyard here. We have great privileges. Nobody can compare to the privileges we have. Anytime you want to go to the bathroom, you just walk right there in the bathroom, right inside the house. 
That really wasn't so even a hundred years ago, was it much? Wow. Think about it. The responsibility. Those are all just you know material things. But I'm thinking, look at all the things we have to seek out the Lord. And you know what? We're just flat out lazy. Look, everybody's opening the door and they're out of here by now. And I say that because I too find myself taking a little more extra time just watching TV and just sitting. Is it wrong to watch TV? I didn't say that. But how often do we do? How much is it our life? We're being on the internet and doing things. It's about living for Christ and being filled with His Word. It's pretty amazing. You know, we're, we're responsible. We are accountable to God who has given us all these things, the spiritual things and then everything else that goes along with it. Life is easy here. Even though it's difficult, we have things, but I want you to think that nobody has had this kind of thing that we have now. Do we live for ourselves? Or do we bear fruit for our Lord Jesus Christ? We're either laboring for what we can get out of the vineyard for ourselves, or we are laboring for what? For the owner. To give him the produce. A Christ-like life. That's really what he wants. A life that looks like Christ. Now, harvest time. Man, planted a vineyard. Went out to, uh, uh, and rented it out to vine growers. Went on a journey for a long time. And the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers. Verse 10. It's harvest time. It's the appropriate time. It's time to collect the fruit. The fruit that the owner deserves to get. What they had agreed upon. So God expects fruit from us, doesn't He? That we would bear much fruit. If you're a Christian, you really do have fruit. The problem is, is that sometimes we don't let it grow. So, we go to number two. God expects fruit, but I do want to tell you, He is a patient God. It sounds like he's an ogre as an owner. Not at all. He is so good, so gracious, merciful, loving. The patience of him is way beyond any human patience that we can even understand. The first servant is sent to get fruit. At the harvest time, he sent a slave, a doulos. It's a slave in this case. It's one who is authorized as a representative of the owner to go get the fruit. He's representing the owner. He comes for one purpose. To gather it up. Take it back to the owner. What happens to him? He's beaten. Sent away. Doesn't get the fruit. So what does the owner do? Sends another slave. 
And we see this, you know, we, we've already read it. You have a second one, you have a third one. And actually when you look in um, Matthew, it's, it's just multiple, 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 multiple servants. One after another, after another, after another. You know what they're representing, don't you? The prophets. Hundreds of years of telling the people, follow me and my ways. I'll bless you. Third servant is sent and wounded and cast out. This kind of patience is unreasonable. It's illogical. It's superhuman. It goes beyond human patience, doesn't it? Why would he keep doing that? He's not getting his fruit and he just keeps sending people to get it. He could have just stripped what they thought they had as ownership from them. So as a disobedient nation, they ignored the owner. They treated his servants and terribly and killed them. And God kept sending them. He demonstrates His abundant patience, grace. The history of the nation of Israel reveals the tragic wickedness the depravity of man's heart. This is how evil all of our hearts can be if it were not for the grace of God. You see, we would reject Christ if it were not for a move that He makes in us. He has to regenerate our hearts, doesn't He? for us to receive Him. No people were privileged by God as far as the nations are concerned more than Israel. Very much privileged. If you'll turn to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 23. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, verse 23. This is what I commanded them saying. Obey my voice. Does that sound too illogical? He says, obey. Here's what I do. You obey. And I will be your God. And you will be my people. Wow, what a privilege. And you will walk in all the way which I commanded you that it may be well with you. It's only for your good. Choose the good, right? Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you and all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. That's out of Jeremiah. Look in... Matthew, or uh, Jeremiah 25, verse 4. We won't read all of these verses, but he just warns more. We're just taking a few. I mean, this goes on and on all throughout the prophets. 25, 
verse 4 says, And the Lord has sent to you all His servants, the prophets, what? Again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods and such. Verse 11, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror and these nations will serve the king of Babylon. What? Seventy years. You know what? Historically, did you know that that was absolutely correct? When was this written? After the fact of the matter? No. It was written before it happened. You're kidding. Yeah. Yeah written way before it happened. And he named who was going to do it to him. And he told him how long they would be held captive as a nation. Seventy years. I think that gives credence to God's Word, doesn't it? When there's prophecy and it's told beforehand, and then it happens, something to consider. Well, it goes on and on and on. This is exactly what happened historically. And we can see that that's the way that it's set out. We have to look at Matthew 23. This is not the same parable here. But it's the woes to the leaders. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. The prophets, the ones who were killed, it says you, you build up monuments to them. It says, why do you do that? And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. We wouldn't have done that. So they put up monuments for them. Great. And they're saying we wouldn't have done it. The thing is, they would have. Matter of fact, what did they do to the greatest prophet ever? So you testify against yourselves and you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. You're related to them. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You are serpents. You brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Wow, folks, that's that's heavy. He's calling them sons of snakes. They're from the brood of vipers. Serpents, you snakes, you sons of snakes. How are you going to escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. After they did it to Jesus, they did it to apostles and other followers of Christ. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel, Genesis, to the blood of Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Is that heavy? But yet, our point on this one is the patience of God. 
superabounding grace. Turn to Romans 5.20. Oh, he's so good. You know what? When you get the Gospel, you have to bring in the healing medicine. It can actually sting and hurt. But it's actually for the good. Do you see the balance in it? We would love to hear nothing but all good things. But we also have to hear the bad things and the warnings, don't we? We have to have that. Romans 5.20 If I was a pastor for hire and I wanted to stay home, stay uh, in, in uh, business and keep the people, I'd tell you all positive good things. And we could build this church up even more and to get, you know, tell them things that is just so good and magnificent, which are true. But if I never tell you the warnings, then I'm a hireling. Because I have to warn us. The Bible warns us. But look at this in Romans 5.20. This is beautiful. Romans 5.20 The law came in so that the transgression would increase. It really shows people's sin is what it does. It expands it out. We can't miss it, right? But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Ah, does that give a salve that is soothing to your wounds? Grace abounds over all the sin, but you don't understand what I've done. You don't have an idea of some of the things has anybody ever said that to you? Probably so. It's too late. I, I'm not. I, God can't do anything for me now. It's too late. Uh, it's never too late, is it? See, there we can't outsin His amazing grace that super abounds it. Now, does that give us credence? That, well, I, I can go out and sin and do whatever I want then, or I don't have to really do anything. You know. God's grace covers me. And no, no, no. We are not saying that whatsoever. You know, if you've been a Christian at any length of time, you know what really goes through your mind when you think about this? God's extravagant patience and grace. Some of the things that I did, and the Lord forgives me of that. Doesn't that give a joy to your heart? You know how He has dealt with us? That should motivate us to be zealous for Christ, shouldn't it? Because of what He's done. You know what? God sends us preachers who proclaim the truth of His Word. Can you guys identify with that? God sends preachers and teachers to proclaim His Word. you know that person is for you? God also sends others who are close to us to warn us, to encourage us, to live the lives that we are to be doing, and to have the words so that we can have fruitful lives. You have friends. You might have family that will give you what you need. The balm and Gilead. Sometimes God sends us Health problems, 
so that we realize how frail and dependent we really are. Do you go through life every day realizing that you don't deserve any of God's grace and that you are frail and you are weak and there is nothing about you that can make God pleased in what you do in the sense of trying to earn salvation? Right? We, When we pray, we're absolutely realizing that we are totally dependent on Him. How about signs of aging? Well, that makes you humble. How about gray hair? And then, no hair as it goes away. Where did it go? Loss of your strength, of your youthful life that you used to have. It's not quite like it used to be. You can't see as good as you used to. You can't hear as good as you used to. God uses all of that to humble us and make us realize we are absolutely dependent upon Him. And then He will take loved ones from us and we realize that eternity is far beyond the little things that we see here and now. Relationships are important, but those relationships don't last forever. We can be here today, and we can be gone tomorrow. One of us could be gone next time we meet. I'm not thinking that, I'm not praying for that, and forbid that that ever happened, but yet, if God wants to do that, He can. If you're a Christian... Glory be to God. But we're not here to live so that we... I can't wait till I die because I want to get out of this place. That is not why we are put here. We're put here with a body to be able to be doing things for the kingdom of God. So, all the gracious messengers that God gives and all these kind of things, it reminds us of eternity. And that He gives and He gives and He gives and He gives over and over and over and over and over again. What we've just heard here today is something that God gave us. You've heard it preached. You are now accountable for what you have. I am accountable. What I've been studying all week and it's been on my mind just constantly every day. Live accountably to Him. Bearing fruit with your lives. What if you don't bear fruit? God is patient. But we work through the text. God is also a God of love. The depth of His love is just... Amazing. The Father's love is so great that He was willing to send His beloved Son, His only Son, so that He could bring His people that He had chosen to bring them to Him. He is unique, the Son of the, of the owner, Christ. He's not a slave. He's the Son of 
of God here. He's distinct from all other messengers. He has divine authority. He is the heir to all things. He has all divine rights to all things. They should have respected Him when He came. They didn't respect Him. They should have been shamed into respecting Him. Go to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Romans 5 again. This is beautiful. But God demonstrates His own what? What is it? L-O-V-E. That's what He's doing here. He's shown His amazing patience and His ultimate demonstration of love was sending His Son His own love toward us in that while we got us all covered here, right? We're yet sinners. Christ died for us. For me. He died. He sent a lot of prophets. He sent a lot of messengers. And you know what? As a kid, I would hear those messengers. And I'd go, that's right, yeah. And I'd go on. <laughs> I was raised up in church. We'd go to revivals, which was two weeks long every night of the week. And for a kid, that is really, really hard. <laughs> Do we have to go tonight, Mom and Dad? And I said that once, and that was it. I never said that again. that <laughs> conversation. So there I was. And then, you know... Sundays, Sunday nights, singing all those hymns. Okay, it's going through the motions. And then I would hear those revival messages, which were much harder than any kind of messages that you hear today. It was about sin. And then one day, that sin message really hit me like a ton of bricks. Because I realized that that sin, that sinner, was me. I thought it was all the other people in in the church. There must be somebody that's really bad here. It's not me. No, when you start seeing what you're really about, you, you let God open it up and Him convict you. It is ugly. We all have that problem. Even as Christians. We still battle it. But don't we want it taken care of? Right? Well, it definitely hit me. I was convicted. Thank the Lord. He kept sending messengers the last years went by, and then finally he sent teachers to me. And, oh wow, I found the joy of God's Word. And after that, I was never the same. And as a result, that's why our Bible study in our church got started. Because I just wanted to share what I had. And so it was God's work. This is His church. It's not mine. But I have to be consistent in preaching what is here. There's good news with all this, isn't there? 
When the vine growers hear this, we go back to Luke, we're getting near the end, but I want you to see something. The sun is sent, perhaps they were expecting, but when the vine growers, I want you to catch this, saw Him. I want you to catch that. They saw Him. They reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir. Do you see what they caught? Let us kill Him so that the inheritance will be ours. You see, if if the son or the inheritor, and there's no other inheritors of that land, if they are dead, then whoever claims that land, whoever's on it, it can be theirs. That's under Jewish property law. This is the heir, they're saying. So, you know, this is not mistaken identity, folks. Not in this story. Nor is it to the leaders and the people there. They knew who the Son of God was. They knew it. They saw Him. Just like here. They reasoned. They said, He's the heir. He's going to take us out of business. This was their life. This was everything. The inheritance was going to be for themselves. Who owns the vineyard? Well, they didn't want to submit themselves to God's rightful ownership. He owns it, right? They wanted to rule the vineyard. What a position they had. They loved it. They want to keep it. So Jesus, in the story, is going to make them, it's going to dawn on them that He's telling that they are the murderers. He knows exactly what they're about to do in two days. They're going to kill Him. And they want the inheritance to be ours. They want total control over this. They've killed the prophets. They shun John the Baptist. Jesus is the prophet. We need to kill Him. The crucifixion is going to be in two days. They threw him out of the vineyard, they killed him. They threw him out of Jerusalem, they killed him. He was an outcast. He's thrown outside the nation. And literally, he was actually thrown outside the city at his crucifixion, if we want to take it that far. So there we have the love of God. But His love and His kindness, His mercy and grace only goes so far. Did you know that God is a kind God? But He's also severe. Look in Romans 11, 22, as He talks about the nation of Israel. Romans 11, 22. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity but to you God's kindness to the nation of Israel severe judgment he judged them in 70 AD 
They've been basically cut off as a nation since that time. But in Romans 11, it also says what? That He will graft them back in. He's very kind to us as Gentiles to put us in, but they were the vine, they were the tree, and they'll be put back in. So the righteous judgment is mentioned here. I want you to go to Matthew 21, which is the ongoing parable that parallels with what we are talking about today. And 21 verse uh, 40. Therefore, Okay, they've thrown him in the, uh, out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, when he comes back to judge, what will he do to those vine growers? And you know what? In this passage in Matthew, it, it shows that they answer. What do they say? They, this is, it's staggering to them. Why, what the slave or uh, the property owners, or property, the ones who work the land, <laughs> the vine growers, they're so mad at these vine growers. And so what do they say? They said to him, He'll bring those wretches to a wicked end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. You know what they just did? They convicted themselves. Wow! They just were on in court and they just told it straight out and they gave the answer. Now go back to our, our uh, Luke passage. That is amazing what they just said. In our Luke passage, we correlate this now. Remember, when they saw him, they reasoned. This is the heir, right? He's, he's the rightful heir. Look at, he says at the end of 15, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now it doesn't have a Matthew passage says, He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. So, he's saying it. They're saying it. Look at this. This is really what catches me. When they heard it, they said, they pronounced judgment. Jesus pronounced judgment. And the word heard there means to understand. It means to perceive. It means, I get it. Oh. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. We take that back. No, 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 not, not that. The word there is in Luke is may genital. Because it says, when they heard it, they understood it. And they say, may it never be. May genital. No, 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 no way. No absolute way at all. It can't be. It can't be. Do you see what's happening there? This is sweeping history. And when the people understood it, they realized what they just said that was recorded in Matthew. We've just condemned our own religion, our own nation, ourselves. We take it back. May it never be. We take it back. We should never have said that. In 70 AD, 40 years later, one generation, Jerusalem was destroyed. 
People were scattered all over the world after that. That was the mighty judgment that came. A righteous judgment. Romans 11, 17 gives you what God has in plan as He's already designed this. Uh, Did I say 17? But if some of the branches were broken off and you bring a wild olive were grafted in among them and he became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, Jews and Gentiles together, that's the way it was always meant. Do not be arrogant, you Gentiles who become Christians, toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. What's the root? It's Israel. You will say them, the branches were broken off, that's Israel, so that I might be grafted in. That's right. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith, do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. But then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Destruction, but privilege given to others. Did it happen? Yes, certainly did. This is the good news. He wins. <laughs> Praise God. We win. These wicked tenant farmers could kill the son, but God would raise him up from the dead to be the chief cornerstone of this whole thing. Because what it looks like is that Christianity or so that would come, is defeated. Satan is gone. Ha, 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 got him! His death is a scandal to all those looking for earthly displays of power and influence. See, that's what people, they want to see results. You see, we don't always see things. You know, it, it appears one way, but it's not always that way. Outward results are not a good measure of faithful preaching. I read that yesterday and it really encouraged me. If people looked at our little church, they would go, nothing's happening there. But you know what? God's doing His thing. He's working in us. If we preach the Word, focus on that, let Him take care of whatever is going to be done. Keep preaching it. Keep reading it. Keep believing it. No matter what you see in your own life, no matter what you see in the church, if the Word is taught, you have worship, God is doing it. We need that encouragement, folks. We have a lot of things to really be grateful for. The chief cornerstone comes right out of Psalm 118.22. Not enough time to go there. But you all heard about the chief cornerstone. 
Jesus prophesied that here in Luke. It's found elsewhere in many different passages. They said, may it never be, you know, we take that back, you know, that's not us, no, no. Jesus looked at them. Did you see that? He looked at them. And He said this, What then is this, that it is written, the stone which the builders rejected, the leaders of Israel, they rejected that stone right there and then. They've been rejecting him all along. They reject him now. They reject him all the way, right on to hell. Even though they believed their Bible, mm. this became the chief cornerstone. There's our triumph. It looks like he's dead. Three days later, he resurrects. He's the cornerstone which everything is built. They thought they had the foundation. He is what everything is built upon. Broken to pieces and scattered like dust, it says in 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Stumbling block, right? Jesus is a stumbling block. You'll see that in Romans. You'll see it in other places. To them it was a stumbling... Jesus was a stumbling block. Bump into it. Just keep bumping into it. They'll be broken to pieces. And when they're broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter like dust. There we go. Verse 18 means that if you pit yourself against the chief cornerstone, you will lose and he will win every time. Now there is a Jewish proverb. It's not in your Bible. But it says this, and commentators that I read, it's amazing how many quoted this one. It says it all about what this verse 18 is. If the stone falls on the pot, you know, a pot is made of what? Clay. If the stone falls, what's going to break? Alas, for the pot, right? Okay, what about the pot falls on the stone? The pot still breaks. That's what Jesus is saying. He puts this all together. Either way, the pot loses and the stone wins. Jesus Christ is the rightful heir and He's the owner of the vineyard and we are accountable to the fruit that He has given us to grow. We are accountable to Him. How are you accountable to Christ? Do you see that every day you're accountable to Him? In a joyous way. You serve Him because it's the fruit of Christ. If that is not a pattern of one's life, there will be certain judgment. Because that is what a Christian is. He produces fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, right? But they will have fruit. What a reason it is to respond with faith and gratitude every day for the fruit that He is working in us and out of us. It's not a scare tactic. It's joy to us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. If these dominate your life, keep pursuing them. If they don't, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith and say, thank you, Lord, that you are the one that puts the fruit in my life. I want to glorify you by looking like Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your truth. It is a treasure. It is a pleasure to study your word here today. And that it would make an impact on our lives. And it would change us as we constantly need to be changed. You are the changeless one. But thank you that you are changing us into the image of your son. Who is the rightful heir. And as he is the heir who owns all things. He shares it with his brothers and sisters in Christ. In your son's name we pray. Amen.